If you're a California conservative, a libertarian, a moderate Democrat, believe in common sense, or just a sane person, this is the political podcast for you. It's the California Underground Podcast. What's going on, everybody? Thanks for tuning in to another episode of California Underground. I am excited to have with me a colleague of mine all the way back from law school, uh, good old Thomas Jefferson School of Law, uh, rest in peace. Uh, so there's the dog we were talking about before. Uh, she is a former prosecutor. You were a former prosecutor in the Bay Area. Um, I know I've talked about in the past that I, I clerked and did some internships at the San Diego District Attorney, but you were actually a prosecutor, which is way different than being like an intern who just handles the same old stuff over and over again. Um, and you had actually reached out to me and said, I want to talk about what's going on with the crime wave. And I feel like I want to add my two cents as to what's going on. Um, so first off, Cash, how are you? How are things? I, great to see you. Again. I'm, I'm doing great. It's so good to see you. For those of you that don't know, Phil and I were just buddies in law school, um, spent holidays together. And so it's finally, it's so good to be reunited. And it's great to see you having this platform um, I think it's something that California definitely needs. Yeah, I still I, think I still tell people the story of the Thanksgiving I went to at your family's house <laughs> up in Fallbrook. <laughs> yes. And there were three types of turkeys. There was a deep fried turkey. There was a roasted turkey. And I can't remember the last type of turkey. A barbecue oh, was turkey. Like, it was a barbecue turkey. I still tell people to this day that the, that was one of the best Thanksgivings I'd ever been to. There were three types of turkey. I love turkey at Thanksgiving. Um, so I guess we'll just like jump right in. Why don't you talk a little bit about your, like your experience, where you were a prosecutor, um, and then we can kind of go into there and in, in your experience, what the laws were and the challenges you were facing. Mm -hmm. And we'll just sure. kind of run from there. So I have been a attorney since 20, I passed the bar in 2017. I've been an attorney since about 2018. I started off in municipal and then I went into, um, being a prosecutor. I was a prosecutor in the Bay Area. I won't specifically state which county, but you can guess and probably find out from a Google search. But I started off as a baby DA. I worked in misdemeanors. Um, I was in a very, I, I don't know what the right word is. It was, I was in a very urban area. And so there was a lot, a lot of crime that I was seeing. Um, and as I progressed throughout my my experience as a prosecutor, I was really starting to see the flaws with our criminal justice system and the accountability that was that we were holding criminal, like we were not holding criminals to any standard. People were getting away with everything. And, and it really opened my eyes to the path that California is on. And I just, it, it was disheartening. Um, and I was a prosecutor during the George Floyd protests. I was there we had death threats we had threats against our office we were having to be evacuated there were times where we couldn't walk to court where we would receive text messages to stay in court until somebody could come get us because there were threats that people were going to come attack the prosecutors and you know it was just a it was an interesting time to be a da and you saw this evolution and with the law from pre-george floyd to post-george floyd and it it's going to be extremely detrimental for the state of California. Um, and I think it should be a concern. And I don't know if 
you know, Californians are aware of what's happening and what bills are being passed by the legislature and the things that are ultimately going to affect everybody's communities. Um, you're seeing it here, especially in the Bay Area, but it's these liberal applications of the law. And it's it's a concern. It really, really is. And one of the main points I wanted to talk about was this bill called AB 3234 that happened right towards the tail end of my my journey as a prosecutor. And it really decriminalizes misdemeanors. Um, so we're going to pull it up. Yeah, Phil pulled it up here. And and what it what it means is it's going to allow courts over the objection of the prosecution to implement what is called a pretrial diversion program. And this means that the defense can make a motion to the court saying, hey, look, my client should not have to go through the formal criminal proceedings. They should be able to be offered this pretrial diversion where they, the court set specific terms. So we'll give an example of vandalism. Say somebody goes out and they break a window on a house and graffiti the house. They will make a pitch and say, look, it was just property damage. It was a victimless crime. Nobody was harmed here. They have a very limited criminal history. So what we're going to do is we're going to ask the court to impose pretrial diversion. And the court, over the people's objection, that being the district attorney, can implement this diversion program, which is new because generally it would be the prosecution that was the one making this recommendation because they have the evidence in front of them. They have the rap sheets. They can make that determination of whether or not it's appropriate. But here it's giving the court system the authority and completely overriding the people's position. And so the judge can say, hey, look, you broke a window, you graffitied something, go do an eight hour anger management course or go do 10 hours of community service. If you can do that within, and they'll set a time frame. it could be six months, a year, and it could be up to 24 months. And it could allow them an opportunity to complete these terms. And then they come back to the court and say, here's my community service or my eight hour anger management program. And then the court can accept that and basically completely dismiss the case. And it's as if the arrest never occurred. So that really takes a lot of power out of the prosecutor's hands because you even if you wanted to bring charges against a specific defendant, you're saying the court can kind of step in and say, no, we're going to instead order this different avenue or this different remedy for them. Mm -hmm. um, so even if you're as a prosecutor, you want to kind of punish them or I guess punish them for charge them for the crime that they committed, you might not even have the power to do so that that's being effectively taken out of your hands as a prosecutor. Yeah, exactly. And there was a lot of frustration among the office I worked in, and it was felt throughout the state of California that, you know, our jobs are in reality being taken away from us. And if you live in a more liberal area where there tend to be more liberal judges on the bench, your job seems kind of irrelevant because I would do, and, and I just to remind people, these are most misdemeanors that are qualified for this pretrial diversion, even DUIs. There's only a, a, a handful of exceptions, those being domestic violence, stalking, and anything that requires a 290 registration, meaning sex, generally sex assault against a minor. And so DUIs, which are generally priable in the state of California, can now com be completely diverted and people can potentially have five to 10 DUIs before they're eventually prosecuted. It's at the discretion of the court. 
Wow. So, yeah, it's really, really concerning. And, and to keep in mind, a lot of these Superior Court judges are elected. So if you think about the constituents in the areas, if you're in the Bay Area, a lot of these judges may have a certain leaning or a certain political philosophy on this. And they may feel like they're trying to do what they think is right. But in reality, they're just pushing this idea of lessened criminal charges or lessened criminal penalties, which has become sort of like the pervasive uh, narrative. I think it's changing now. It's funny. I actually saw a tweet before we hopped on that uh, Mayor Breed of San Francisco just had a huge press conference where she said, we are now going to invest in public safety and we're now going to push back and we're not going to allow mm -hmm. uh, people to do drugs on the streets to all these misdemeanors. Um, and that's something I've brought up before is that you can have politicians like Breed or Newsom say, mm -hmm. well, it's an issue of prosecuting and it's an issue that we're not prosecuting them enough and we just need to arrest and prosecute more. And I've said before that a lot of times prosecutors hands are tied and they can't mm -hmm. really do anything in these instances. Um, and this seems to be a case of it. This is relatively new um, that mm -hmm. I wasn't really even aware of. This was just last year. Yes. Um, so in your specific case, when you were working there, did you feel like your hands were continually tied by a lot of these policies? So this is one of the reasons why I left the DA's office because I was, my job was essentially ineffective. And so mm -hmm. I've gone to court before on multiple hundreds of cases. And I want to remind everybody that district attorney's caseloads, especially in highly populated areas, I was handling an 800 case, 800 cases. And mm -hmm. I was doing charging as well, jury trials, motions, everything. And so you're doing your best, obviously, to effectuate some type of justice and hold people accountable. But then you're walking into court trying to, you know, protect your community and you're just getting backhanded by the judge telling you your case is dog shit because they want to divert everything. And mm -hmm. this diversion program, I understand where people, you want to see the best in people and you want to give people an opportunity to be rehabilitated. I think a lot of people agree with that. And there are, there is a small portion of the population that is can be rehabilitated and there is not a level of recidivism but you know defendants with 80 page rap sheets should not be qualifying for diversion you know mm -hmm. we're doing an injustice to our community and we are putting people back on the streets that should not be there you know and we're it, it's really it's concerning it really yeah. is so just to back up a little bit for people who are listening or tuning in uh, you're talking a lot about this is specifically misdemeanors. So mm -hmm. could you just clarify for people like what is a misdemeanor compared to a felony and why they might be doing these diversion programs for misdemeanors? Sure. So misdemeanors are tend to be lower level offenses. So you have a simple battery, vandalism, you have domestic violence, just simple battery, domestic violence, DUIs. And the reason why we're offering or the legislature is implementing these diversion programs is, you know, you want to give people a second chance. But the problem is, is that it's 
being almost, I think, oftentimes over abused, like over abused, and it's being used too often, and it's not being used on a case by case basis. You know, the def defense and public defenders are just openly asking the court on every single case for pre-trial pre diversion. And it mm -hmm. shouldn't be something that is provided to everybody that's offered or being charged with a misdemeanor because you have people that have, you know, intense felonies who are then committing misdemeanors that are then being offered this pre-trial pre diversion. And so with felonies, it's a different, it's a different scenario. Those are your high level offenses, aggravated assaults, firearms, charges, things like that. But, okay. you know, it, it's frustrating when you hear our politicians like the mayor of San Francisco, and you've seen Gavin Newsom too, coming out and saying, you know, we're, we're tough on crime in California. It's the prosecutors that are choosing not to make you know, not to prosecute these cases, you know, the cops aren't making the arrests. And I want to remind people like, and I, I know you have extremely smart and intelligent listeners and followers, like, but remember that they can, they're talking really out of their ass because there are these laws in place that in reality are making petty theft or these retail crimes that are happening. I mean, there's no accountability and it's very limited. So, yeah, that's been the biggest thing we've seen so far. And it's always seems to be like the poster child of crime here in California is the idea of like people just walking into a CVS, grabbing a whole shelf full of stuff because it's under the $950 limit that they've now imposed. A lot of people say, well, you won't get charged because it's not a crime. Mm -hmm. And I always say, well, that's not the case. It's just you can be charged, but whether they actually want to follow through and get charged and face any sort of punishment is a whole different story. Mm -hmm. And as a prosecutor, you're saying you have an enormous caseload. You're trying to get as much justice as possible. You're juggling everything. And then you have on top of it, the judges who are really just taking it out of your hands anyway. So yeah. um, it's not that they're not getting charged. Or it's not a crime in California to steal under $950. It's that the repercussions are likely not going to occur. So there's, there's no risk for a lot of these people to commit yeah. these crimes. Well, and I guess it depends too jurisdictionally, like what, where your DA's office is. I mean, if we're looking at the Bay area, San Francisco in particular, you know, they're not prosecuting victimless crimes, meaning thefts, property crimes, stolen vehicles. I know somebody that works in the San Francisco area as a police officer and I mean, they've booked people on DUIs and released them that same day. They've booked people on gun charges and booked and released them. And so, I mean, it, it really depends on where you are jurisdictionally. I know there are some areas that really truly prosecute and they're able to get guilty verdicts on low level offenses because they have the backing of the DA or whoever they work with or community backs them. They have good jury selection, but you know, and that's another part of it too. Like within certain jurisdictions, it's sometimes it's hard to prosecute cases because of jury notification, you know, and mm -hmm. people feeling guilty about prosecuting somebody or finding somebody guilty. I'm sorry that, you know, finding somebody guilty for a simple battery. It's like, oh, weighing the, the pros and cons. Like, um, you know, he just punched this person and caused a bruise. Like, is that enough? Is that really enough to have this person have a guilty verdict and a misdemeanor on the record for the rest of their life. Like you do get a lot of that as well. So when you say jury nullification, what do you, what do you mean by jury nullification? 
So what we say jury notification, what I mean by when I say it is like people sympathize with the defendant and they don't mm. look at the facts objectively. They don't apply, they don't apply the evidence, the facts of the evidence and they weigh the case and they look at it and they say, again, I don't know if I want to convict this person because I kind of feel bad for him. And I mean, it happens a lot. I've seen, mm. I've seen resisting cases against officers where it's on video where they've taken the officer beaten them up, driven off in a car, and the jury found not guilty. I feel like, and you you touched upon like local jurisdictions, and I, I it's much different down here in San Diego. I know um, mm-hmm. our DA, Summer Stevens, is a little bit more tough on crime. Um, she did just make headlines by actually prosecuting Antifa members who were here in PB. Oh, wow. Um, so that was a big deal because actually Antifa was being charged with something. Um, but it's interesting you bring up this whole pretrial diversion uh, because from my understanding that here in San Diego, you rarely ever get pretrial diversion. So it, I guess it is just county by county as opposed to in the mm-hmm. Bay Area where it's like everyone gets a pretrial diversion. Yeah, and it's I'm in, like I joke, communist China up here. <laughs> You know, in the, it's, it's seriously a different world in the Bay area. Um, and the way we prosecute crimes in this area is a, is a, is a concern. I mean, it is a legitimate risk to public safety because we are letting people out of custody who should not be out of custody. I mean, with the no cash bail and the case that came out of the California Supreme court, but I mean, even these, that's an issue, but also people that are committing low level crimes are still a threat to public safety in my mind. And there's no accountability. And we've, we've turned criminals into the victims. And it's sad because we forget about people who are true victims of crime. And I feel like they're pushed to the back and are Mm -hmm. in some way forgotten about. So you'd brought up juries and you had sent me this, um, AB 3070, which is about juries and peremptory challenges. Uh, um, yeah. Did you want to talk about what are peremptory challenges and, and what is this bill related to? Yeah. So the peremptory challenges are challenges that you can use in court when you're in jury selection to kick a juror. Um, you can't kick a juror based on race, gender, sexual orientation. Um, but they've, they've created this new law. And I'm not as well versed on this as probably I should be because I don't do jury trials anymore, unfortunately, because this kind of came in as I was leaving. But now with preemptory challenges, before you could make an, you could raise a preemptory challenge and oftentimes the judge would, would allow it. But because you wanted to kick somebody because they were, you know, they're sitting back in their chair, or they're falling asleep, they're disinterested they're not paying attention like you know you're kicking people for certain reasons and you don't want to have somebody like that on your jury you want somebody that's paying attention that's focused that's going to listen to the evidence but Hmm. this new bill from what i took away from it is really when you make a preemptory challenge and if it's somebody of that like a sub a minority group somebody who's african-american or you know has identifies as transgender or something um, now, if you make a challenge, there has to be clear and convincing evidence that goes along with the reason why you're kicking this person. It can't simply be, if you scroll actually down, it mm-hmm. provides a list of reasons why 
you can't kick. And so one of the examples somebody gave when I was working at a DA's op- the DA's office said, you could really have somebody in there that said, you know, fuck the police. I'm sorry if I can't curse, but, you know, F the police on their shirts that's sitting there in jury selection and who's giving kind of mediocre answers, but it's not paying attention, doesn't care and has expressed his bias towards police officers. Really, you could try to kick that person based on bias, but mm-hmm. you have to now provide clear and convincing evidence. And you may, that person may get stuck on your jury now. And the reason some people may use this is because when you go through voir dire, when you're picking a jury, you're trying to pick jurors that, whether you're the prosecution or the defense, you're trying to pick jurors that would likely be more sympathetic to your case. Um, And you're trying to eliminate people who might have a strong bias against your case. Mm -hmm. And in some cases, you can bring up these issues. Like you said, if Mm -hmm. somebody says F the police and it's an issue of they don't like the police and you know they're going to vote against you no matter what. It doesn't matter if they have video of someone being murdered and they hold the weapon and their prints are on it. They're going to say, well, I hate the state and I hate prosecutors. So therefore I'm going to still be on the jury, which does do a disservice to the jury and the trial procedure, because now you're not really, are you really getting a fair trial of all the facts? Mm -hmm. And is it more about people are bringing their bias in? Cause a lot of times in voir dire, They'll ask questions or the judge will ask a juror if it looks like they may be biased. They'll say, even though you are opposed to the death penalty, do you think you would, after seeing all the facts and evidence mm-hmm. presented in front of you and the arguments, would you still be able to come to a non-biased answer about this case? And if they say yes, you know, you're, they're kind of attesting to the judge. Yeah, I can, I can do that. But in this case, if you can't really get rid of them for these reasons, now there's people who are on your jury who have biased and you know, they're going to be a certain vote no matter Mm -hmm. what, which kind of already puts you behind the eight balls prosecutor. Yeah. And I mean, here's an example of somebody I've kicked previously on a jury, on a jury in voir dire. I asked, you know, you know, we have the, the burden is on the people and blah, blah, blah. And walked through the criminal justice, like the process and everything. And this person said, well, I believe that you're innocent or guilty until proven innocent. And, you know, I mean, that right there is bias. You don't want somebody like that on your jury. I mean, you know that the defense is going to kick them and I want to kick them because you want a fair and objective juror. Um, and you get people, too, that would have poor, bad experiences with law enforcement who verbalize bias towards police officers and you're prosecuting a case about resisting a police officer. You don't want people like that on your jury. You want people that can be fair. Who, and it, you continue to ask them questions like, could you put your personal experience aside and look at these the facts of this case objectively? And if they say yes, you continue to ask them questions. But if they say no, that right there could be enough to kick them. But you really have to do your due diligence now in Bordier to make sure that you're establishing by clear and convincing evidence enough to kick somebody. So you aren't challenged. And so people don't think that you're kicking somebody simply based on race, ethnicity. And I think it's so important that we have diverse juries. It's, I mean, it's our civic duty. And I think it's, it's so important, but um, laws like this make it really difficult for people to prosecute. So, so far for anyone who's listening or watching, just to keep score, you have (laughs) so far, you have the laws are rigged against you, right? So we already have bad laws on the books. We have 
a new law that gives judges power so the judges can be rigged against you. We now have juries and peremptory challenges so juries could be rigged against you. So just to keep score of how many hurdles as a prosecutor you have to get past to even enact any sort of justice in California, you already have to get past those three hurdles on top of your caseload of just being a DA, correct? Yeah. So it's already bad enough and it just keeps getting worse. And it's not, so we've already disproved in about 25 minutes, contrary to what Newsom says, it's not because you guys aren't prosecuting, prosecutors are just yeah. not prosecuting. They're not doing their job. It's a, it's a deeper systemic issue. Yeah. And I mean, if you ask any prosecutor out there, the reason why they got into that job is because they wanted to do their best to protect the community and to ensure the public is safe and to hold people accountable and to really represent people that are victims of crimes. Like one of the greatest pleasures I had as a prosecutor was working with victims of domestic violence, you know, and there's nothing worse than having a victim who wants to see prosecution on a misdemeanor case and knowing full well that a jury will likely not convict because the injuries aren't, aren't, I guess, as visibly like you in misdemeanors, you're not going to have a slash across the face. You're not going to have a, a big, huge black eye. It's going to be lesser injury because the more the injury is, it's going to be most likely a felony, but you know, it, it's really hard to prosecute cases in California of domestic violence, or at least in, in the Bay area. Um, I know that's really hard. It makes your job hard as a prosecutor to look that victim in the eye and say, look, like, this case is, we can go to trial, but it's very unlikely we'll get a guilty verdict because of the jury pool or the judge is going to try to divert it and try to have us settle it some other way. So it doesn't go to a jury trial. And a lot of that pressure that we saw was because of COVID, obviously, because we know we weren't going to trials, the courthouses were shut down. So I think it gave judges this like extra boost to try to resolve cases and we thought that was going to stop when the courts opened up but it almost mm. got worse mm. and just okay. trying to kick cases and really not taking misdemeanor cases seriously and it's it's truly unfortunate yeah there's definitely a feeling down here in criminal court that they're pushing everything as much as possible to settlement and plea mm -hmm. so um just because of the backlog uh so when I was a long back when we were at TJ and I was an intern mm -hmm. at the San Diego district attorney's office, we had to start dealing with prop 47 and sort of reclassifying and how people were, uh, mm -hmm. inmates, how they were classified and a lot of these petitions and stuff like that. How much did you, did you see anything with prop 47? What's your experience? Did that, some people say prop 47 hasn't contributed to a rise in crime. Um, some people are saying it does. I'm sure it's more complicated, but I just want to get your opinion on it because it was just becoming a thing when I was there. Yeah. So it's like that idea of broken glass policing, right? Like, or the opposite of that, I guess, because broken glass policing was policing at the, at every level. Like you're doing it from track, you're holding everybody accountable, even for the most minor violations. Right. And mm -hmm. the Prop 47 made, made, certain crimes wobblers right mm -hmm. and so a lot of times though on those cases where they are or in certain certain crimes that are wobblers a lot of times they're being charged as misdemeanors or they're not being taken as seriously as they should um mm -hmm. i'm trying to think of an example 
But I mean, we would have a lot of cases too that we would prosecute as felonies that would audit, the judge would kick them after a prelim and reduce them down to a misdemeanor, you know? Mm-hmm. And then once it's a misdemeanor land, it's like, well, give me pretrial diversion. <laughs> yeah. Once Let's you get down this informally. Yeah. And I mean, diversion really is, I mean, it's very, very popular in, in the Bay area. Um, and most misdemeanors are, are diverted, but yeah. Prop 47. When that happened when we were in law school, wasn't it? It was around that time. Prop 47 and prop 57 passed. So that's why it was a big deal. And it was starting. Mm -hmm. I remember a lot of the prosecutors there would mumble and grumble about having to do these cases and reclassify a lot of their old cases that they'd previously done maybe as felonies um, were now being reclassified so people were petitioning to have them heard or reclassify as a misdemeanor so they could get off or um, get a reduction in their sentence so that was something yeah. I remember I think the I think the way the jurisdictions handle them is like everything that was prop 47 eligible was I think it went through like all of our chief deputies first. Like it wasn't really ever handled in court. I think they just created a list and anything that could be reduced was then reduced. So going back to, you know, it's interesting. I I don't know why I didn't mention this right when you said it. It's interesting for a state that is so focused on the politicians who are, are, are all about the Me Too movement and... Mm-hmm. women's rights and women's empowerment and you're you're saying there's stories of you had to look victims in the eye and say there's nothing we can do we know you're being abused we know you live in a nightmare um and there's you're never going to get justice from mm-hmm. california so it's one of those instances where the policies of the left does not match up with the results you're seeing in the real world and no. I, I never really thought about it that way, but that is definitely something that is probably terrifying to a lot of, and I'm not saying it's only women who are victims of domestic abuse, but it is a larger proportion. So it is interesting in a state that, that worries and cares so much about women's rights and empowering women and making sure there's, you know, women on your CEO, your board of directors and all that, that they don't protect this fundamental right of women to be safe in their households from violence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that we had that conversation a lot at the DA's office is the hypocrisy between the left and exactly what you said with the Me Too movement and then the policies that they stand for and that are being in place that really don't protect victims of domestic violence, sexual assault, and even with the no cash bail. I mean, it's a hard standard to meet now to keep somebody in custody. Um, I had a misdemeanor case. I worked my butt off to make sure that this man stayed in custody because I thought that he was an extreme risk to public safety. And the, you know, the defense attorney was trying to do everything in her power to release him because she wanted him because he had health problems, but we're always putting the defendants before the victims. I mean, my victim was five foot. The defendant was seven feet tall and Mm -hmm. there was an extreme risk and there was a violent history there. And now that we have laws in place that could potentially release somebody like that back out in public and put our victim back in danger. I mean, a criminal protective order and a restraining order will only do so much. I mean, I'm sure people have heard more or have heard multiple times that it's a piece of paper. If somebody wants to violate it, they will. And I think we need to be doing more to protect victims. Um, 
whether that's a victim of domestic violence, whether it's a minor child who's a victim of sexual assault or an adult that's a victim of sexual assault, we need to be doing better. Um, Mm. And we need to stop like romanticizing, I feel like, defendants and criminals. And Mm. there has to be some accountability there. And we always say we're waiting for that pendulum to swing back. And I hope to, I hope it happens soon, but unfortunately, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) we we have yet to see, there's a lot of, lot of talk. There's a lot of politicians who are talking now um, about it, but again, I think it's a systemic issue. You know, they want to throw the word systemic around. This is a systemic issue of, the laws are not favorable. The policies are not favorable. Um, and the only way you're going to change it is you have to change the laws and you have to change mm-hmm. the ability of prosecutors to really prosecute. There was an attempt to reclassify a lot of the crimes that were deemed nonviolent mm-hmm. um, was blocked by Democrats. So it's a, that that to me is like, why are you blocking certain crimes from being reclassified as nonviolent when they clearly are violent. Anybody who reads them is going to say, well, these are violent crimes. Why are they not being prosecuted that way? It's funny that you say, so um, somebody brought up to me recently, like it is obviously the cash and grabs that are happening everywhere with the robberies and breaking in and stealing things from stores. This idea that we're labeling things like it goes back to the romance, like we're romanticizing it. Like we're calling these gangs that are going in and stealing hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of goods, flash mobs. Hmm. It's like, why are we calling it a flash mob? I mean, it's not a dance group. Like this is a, this is a gang of people that's going in and destroying property. Yeah. You know, I, and I think people need to wake up to what's happening and be made aware that I mean, these laws are being passed while you're asleep. Like, and people, a lot of people don't, aren't aware of it. And it's not going to change unless people wake up. And we need to start protecting our communities because this isn't just going to stay in the Bay Area. This will become an epidemic throughout the state of California. It's going to continue to grow as the laws get more lenient and there's less accountability. Yeah. And it's, um, I had talked about this a couple podcasts ago when it started to come around and we'll, we'll segue into organized theft next. Oh God. <laughs> um, but um, we, we watched a video about how that somebody from a California university, I'm sure it's one of the UCs or something said uh, you shouldn't call what happened in San Francisco and Oakland and LA, all that stuff. You shouldn't call it looting because there's a racial context and mm-hmm. you should call it something else. And like you're saying, it's this romanticizing, it's this this uh, empathy for mm-hmm. the defendants, for the accused, um, when in reality, it doesn't change the fact that now Union Square is all boarded up and like the most expensive yeah. stores lost out on Black Friday. And like there, there was victims, there was victims, where, regardless of whether it's a big corporation like Louis Vuitton or the small mom and pop store that, that mm-hmm. has their windows smashed in. It's stuff like this, this, this kind of like fluffy talk is getting in the way of the reality, which is this stuff's happening and we need to deal with it. You want to go over there and talk about how looting is rooted in racial context or whatever. That's fine. We still have a problem on our hands right now. 
Yeah, they're two separate conversations. And I think what politicians are doing is they're like desensitizing people to crime. They're making it very casual, like you were saying, like, oh, you know, it's not like um, Gavin Newsom, I think, was on The View recently and how Mm -hmm. he just spun the conversation when asked about the cash and grabs that are happening in or the smash and grabs, whatever they're calling them in California. And he said, well, you know, crime is is more is higher in Texas than it is in California. But you're completely diverting the conversation and not and not answering it. You're not, you're not, you're not providing a solution to the problem, you mm-hmm. know? And it, it's, it's very frustrating. And he, at times he talks out of his ass. And I think people need to be aware of the laws that are out there that are allowing people to continue to engage in this behavior because it's, it's so frustrating. And he, there's a new bill that was actually passed for these giant retail thefts. Yeah. It's a, uh... It's one of those issues where politicians do this this kind of sleight of hand where they'll say, well, you know, crime is higher in Texas. Yeah, yeah but I bet in Texas they're actually prosecuting people. Yeah. That's the difference. Yeah. Like, yeah. And that's what I think he may have he, – he obviously glossed over. He's trying to say, oh, well, it's higher in Texas. Yeah, but I'm sure in Texas they're not putting up with – a lot of this stuff, you know? Yeah, yeah. And it's like what's happening in San Francisco with Chesa Boudin, the DA there. Um, He's been all over the news. He's been doing a lot of interviews with like 60 Minutes. And, you know, he did, he made this comment about, you know, how the police departments need to be in terms of drug charges. He's like, well, the officers aren't bringing us, the defendants, like they're not arresting people. It's like, well, the reason why they're not arresting people is because you're not prosecuting people. Because mm-hmm. what's happening is when they're arresting people, taking them to the police station, they're being booked and released. They're failing to appear to any type of arraignment or court hearing. And the cases then just either get diverted or they get dismissed. So there's why should the police departments be exhausting thousands and thousands of dollars of resources on canvassing neighborhoods to bring in these, get drugs off the streets when the DA's office isn't prosecuting it. And, you know, he made a comment too. He said, look, we're prosecuting stuff. It's like, well, define prosecution. You know, because to me, pre-trial diversion is not prosecution. That should be a pre-prosecution phase. That should be something that is offered to people who, you know, your 16-year-old, or not, I shouldn't use a juvenile, but say your 21-year-old kid who gets a drunk in public, who's at a concert, is wasted, trips and falls, and is outside being disorderly. That's what pre-trial diversion is. Or somebody who steals a candy bar or steals something one time, don't have a rap sheet. It shouldn't be for the person that has a history of violence who's got two DUIs and is offered pre-filing diversion. Yeah, it should be reserved. I agree with you for the, for anybody who messes up once in their life, Mm -hmm. it should be an option to go that route if need be. And it's just that first time though, if it's just that first time with a misdemeanor, you know, we all make mistakes. That's fine. But like you're saying, once it becomes several misdemeanors and a felony and it becomes all these issues or this giant rap sheet, you don't get the benefit of the I guess it can't be both ways. You can't be soft on everything. Um, You have to be tough a little bit. You have to give them the leeway to say, we'll let we'll let you get this one opportunity to get your life back together. But if you keep coming back and you keep getting charged then we got we got to drop the hammer a little bit because otherwise people will just keep doing it. Yeah, there's just a lack of accountability and like you said people we are soft now and people 
I mean, criminals are smart. You know, mm -hmm. they know how to work the system and they know that they will not get in trouble with certain crimes. They know to steal less than $950. They know how to operate and they're, they're, they're operating and they're being successful because no one's doing anything. And there's just yeah. more and more laws that are coming out that are allowing them to get away with it. I mean, there's been the gang enhancement, which is going, there was a new law that was passed that's going to basically make it more difficult to have a gang enhancement attached to a criminal charge. It's like a bifurcation of the proceedings. And I mean, I don't know about you, but in my opinion, gang violence should be a bipartisan issue. You know, public safety should be a bipartisan issue. This should not be politicized. It should be something that the community as a whole agrees and believes in. Yeah. It's frustrating. So you, you had brought up uh, organized theft. And I oh, guess yeah. the, the smash and grabs that have become national the cash headline and grabs, news. <laughs> the, the, the cash and grabs, the smash and grabs. Just don't call it looting or you'll get canceled. How dare you? Racist. How dare you? Um, so I, I, that this is what I think caught a lot of people's eyes. Mm -hmm. And again, it, it, yeah, it catches the headlines and it's all over the news. But this is really because this has been brewing for a long time. And I guess that's sort of what we've been talking about is to let people know, like this didn't just pop up overnight, organized smash and grabs or cash and grabs or whatever you want to call it. They didn't <laughs> just pop up like our system has been brewing for yeah. a long time for this. So talk to us about uh, organized theft in California. Okay. So organized theft has been going on. It's obviously been around for quite some time. We saw an increase in a spike during the protests um, with George Floyd. There was really, I don't think when I was there, we prosecuted, we had a huge, huge um, smash and grab that happened at the mall. And I don't know the status of that prosecution or whatever happened with it, but a lot of people weren't prosecuting them, at least in the Bay Area. Um, but this new law that was passed, I think, is it AB? I lost it. Hold on. Is it AB 331? Yeah. And so basically, it's just outlining, it specifies and defines what is retail theft, you know, and organized theft, I guess. And it's when you're working really in concert with more than one person and you're stealing and it sets forth these parameters. Like, I think it's like what, within 24 hours, like if you have an arrest, if you scroll down, I think it says like, if there's an arrest. Yeah. So it's like in violation, something's committed. If it's two or more separate occasions within 12 months. And then it says that it's punishable by imprisonment in county jail, not to exceed one year. Unless we not forget what punishable by one year means that is a misdemeanor for everybody. And what does misdemeanor mean? You're, most likely qualify for pre-trial diversion because it is not one of those crimes that's outlined in the exceptions of AB 3234. I don't mm. see anything in the code section or sorry, in the statute that says that it is excluded from pre-trial diversion. Do you? No, but I'm looking at this right now. And I mean, this bill, the way it's written seems like it basically gave the green light to a lot of these smash and grabs yeah. the way it's it's worded 
if they read it, they can see, uh, let's see, any person commits the following acts, guilty of organized I'm theft. I have to pull it up on my own. Acts in concert with one or more persons to steal merchandise. Uh, recruits, coordinates, and organizes to undertake it. Uh, okay, so it sounds like a lot of people working together. Um, the defendant used or possessed an artifice, instrument, container, device, or other article capable of facilitating the removal of merchandise. <laughs> That's a nice way to put it. Removal right. of merchandise from a retail establishment without paying the purchase price in use of artifice, instrument, container, or device, or other articles part of an organized plan to commit theft. And it's, oh, this is a good one. The property involved in the offense is a, of a type or quantity that would not normally be purchased for personal use or consumption, and the property is intended for resale. Okay. So, it sounds like everything aye, that aye, you've aye. seen with the with the cash and grabs right i mean now i'm calling them cash and grabs the smashing i know i'm so sorry <laughs> I'm but so it sorry. sounds like they basically just gave a license to steal in, in the yeah and you know what this reminds me of it's like it's kind of like quasi gang ish mm -hmm. like if you like you are acting in concert with multiple people to commit a crime and it's just it's fascinating to me because, you know, Newsom, I feel like is out there like, look, we're tough on crime. We're tough on these retail thefts. We've proposed this new, this new law that's going to hold people accountable. But the question is, is it? Because these smasher grabs are happening mostly in liberal cities. You're seeing them mm -hmm. all over the Bay Area. You're seeing, I mean, we had, I think, in San Jose and in Walnut Creek, there were two massive ones that happened. Um and I don't know what's going to happen with them because Contra Costa County and Walnut, where Walnut Creek is, is fairly liberal. Mm -hmm. And just like San, I mean, San Jose, I guess you could argue is probably a little bit more conservative, but I, I don't see, I don't see much success coming from this, this uh, bill. Let's just say that. No. And again, just to kind of hammer the point home, this is why this is happening and the, these bills are why it's happening and just as a same thing as a broken record i say this all the time people are going well how do we fix this stuff in california why is california going the way it is it, it's not going to be saved by electing a larry elder it's not going to be saved by no. electing whoever it's got to be saved from the legislature because the legislature yep. writes these bills and yep. when they write these bills that give too much power to judges and they give too much leniency to charge these as misdemeanors and as we've talked about they go down the misdemeanor rabbit hole and then they disappear um that's that's how things are going to get changed um mm -hmm. so uh I, I want to get your opinion in a minute about that but you also sent me this about how oakland city is yeah. <laughs> increasing police staffing and then uh Oakland Councilmember wants incentives to lower experienced officers. So Oakland, which was, you know, notorious for they tipped off, what was it? They tipped off like illegal immigrants that ICE was coming back in the day because they didn't want anything happening. Then they were with George Floyd. They were defund the police and mm -hmm. the mayor there, Libby Schaff or Schaaf, um, was completely on the defund the police same thing with, with Mayor Breed. I mean, both of them mm -hmm. were very much defund the police and we need to think of it. But now they're seeing the repercussions in their neighborhoods. 
and they're scrambling to find solutions probably because they're feeling it politically so uh it's well, just yeah. interesting to see i mean in oakland you're seeing an uptick in violent crimes you're seeing homicide rates skyrocket you're seeing armed robberies skyrocket you're seeing hate crimes against the asian community skyrocket mm -hmm. um and it is of concern i mean the chief has been extremely vocal about what is happening in the community and so it, it's interesting to see this incentive to try to lure new candidates in by by paying a fifty thousand dollar signing bonus and um, i think that the city council just voted recently and they increased the staffing from 676 officers to 737 officers because Oakland at one point was losing eight officers per month because wow. people don't want to work in these liberal cities. I mean, it's a yeah. reality. It's a, it's a, it's a threat to their safety. I mean, officers are being killed. I think there's like 68 officer homicides in within the, I think the last year. And a lot of them have been unprovoked and it's really hard. And I don't blame a lot of these men and women are fam are fathers, mothers, and they don't want to work in these cities. And, and it's, it's, it's sad because a lot of a city like Oakland needs a strong police presence because there are vulnerable groups there that need to be protected. And if you ask members of these communities, a lot of them are looking to having more police presence, you yeah. know, and, they want to see the crime be reduced. They want to be able to walk down the street at night. Like it, it's really sad to see, but I'm, I'm hoping that we get more police officers in the city of Oakland and we get more police officers coming back to the Bay area. Yeah, because it's a, and I, you're seeing it as well in Minneapolis. I think Minneapolis just uh -huh. to increase their police as well. So um, again, going yeah. with the tides of, of the political winds they they were very happy to jump on the bandwagon and shout the same slogans that blm was pushing but now that the reality has come home to roost and their constituents who are victims of all this are starting to say hey wait a second i don't want to live in oakland i don't want to live in the bay area I, people are leaving san francisco they're like i don't want to live in san francisco because it's become just a hellhole of what's going on yeah. Um, now politicians are starting to see it firsthand and they're going, uh, remember that whole defund the police? It changed my mind. We need to refund the police, as somebody just said in the chat. So, yeah, what we need to do is there's this whole idea of like restorative policing and having social workers go out and having mental health experts like you can do that without defunding the police. Like mm -hmm. we can create other programs that help mental health um specialists that can respond to, you know, suicide calls or um, people that are having 5150 episodes. Like we can do that without defunding the police. And because when you're taking money away from the police, you're taking money away from victims. You are making it more difficult to solve crimes, to solve homicides, to bring justice to families that deserve, deserve to have cases solved and to have peace, you know, mm -hmm. with cases involving homicides or aggravated sexual assault. Like, we just, it's frustrating. And it's its unfortunate that we had to take money away and crime had to increase and lives had to be lost for us to realize the importance of having safety off officers present and people to protect us from crimes of violence. Yeah. So 
in the last couple minutes, um, before we finish up here, uh, in your opinion, what are some things that need to be done to turn this giant boat around? You, as Californians, we need to go out and you need to vote at the local level. We need to get people in office, whether people that are willing to be tough on crime. Um, and we need it throughout the entire state. Um, mm -hmm. I, I think that's truly where it starts. I, I don't think, like you said, I don't think the option is just simply putting somebody else in office as governor that's a Republican or has conservative principles. It, it, we need to really reshape the state of California. Like I think California has the ability to become more conservative or at least moderate. Um, mm -hmm. But again, like I said, public safety should not be a political issue. It should be a bipartisan issue that we all agree upon. And we just need to have our, our politicians really focus and be transparent about what is happening in the state. I think that would be important to have these open dialogues and have conversations within the community of what's happening and what the needs of each community are. Because e each mm -hmm. community is different, each jurisdiction is different. Um, but I, th I think that people just like a lot of politicians and counties and cities, a lot of them just got so taken up. I think they wanted a quick response to the George Floyd and they wanted to put a bandaid on a giant gaping hole and mm -hmm. it didn't work. And I, unfortunately we're seeing that. And I really think it, I really think the, the solution is the local level. Yeah, it's it's all about um, getting to know who your state assembly member is, mm -hmm. your state senator. Uh, most people don't even know who they are. They don't even. They always think it's their representative Congress. Congress has nothing to do with this. Um, and that's the first step: is that the legislature has to be, if nothing else, made more even, so that a lot of these crazy bills don't pass or there can be pushback. Um, and then on a local level, you know, keep in mind that mayors are in charge of the city police forces there. So mm -hmm. they have a huge say in the policing of your city or wherever you are. So it does start from the state legislature and comes all the way down to your local level. And who's on your city council as well? As you saw in this mm -hmm. article, city council members have a big say in whether there's more funding or there's bonuses or how much they support the police or they don't support the police. Um, so that's where it, it has to start there and it has to start with the local politicians not federal nobody you know president no. uh, president trump being no. reelected is not going to change anything it has to no. start locally and it doesn't matter whoever becomes governor it has to be changed um from at least the legislature down so and uh, i also really quickly i'm so sorry and it also i think falls on us like as residents like we need to be having these conversations with our friends and families like i know people hate talking about politics, but it, a lot of people are ignorant to what's going on. Um, so mm. I think if you are capable and able to have a conversation with somebody and open their eyes to what's going on, it may shift their perspective and create a domino effect. And I think it could be potentially extremely beneficial. Like we really need to take California back and we just need to make it a safer place and an enjoyable place that people want to live in again, because right now it kind of sucks. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it, it just keeps getting it seems like it, it can't get worse than it already is. But sometimes it, it needs to get this bad for people to kind of wake up 
and for yeah. people to kind of go, what the heck is going on? And I've talked to so many people through this podcast, through this platform who never were involved in politics, who had no mm -hmm. idea. And now all of a sudden they're thinking about running for school board or county supervisor yeah. or city council. And they're like, I know all my county supervisors now. I know all my city council members and I email them and I talk. And I'm like, that's great. That's what we need is people to wake up and go, what the heck happened to California? I think 2020 as horrible as it was. And we're still kind of feeling the effects of 2020. The silver lining is that a lot of people in California kind of woke up to this and mm -hmm. Now they're going, wait a second, how do we get so bad? And they have to look back on all these laws that were passed, Prop 47, Prop 57, the laws we've looked at in this podcast and say, okay, I don't ever want this to happen again. So now I'm going to pay attention to who's mm -hmm. writing these laws and who I'm electing. So, um, Because if we don't, if we don't make a change now, it's just going to continue to get worse. Like you are going to see laws that could potentially impact felonies or reduce certain mm. sentences. I mean, it, it could get, it could get bad, even worse. And so I just, we're in this together. Let's do this. That's all we're I have all to say. This. Like there's hope. There really is hope. I promise there's hope. The yeah. pendulum just needs to swing. Hopefully I, I, hopefully it starts swinging soon. I think there's a lot of people who want to see it swing soon. Uh, Cash, it was great chatting with you and seeing you again. I know we go back and forth on message, but it's actually great to see you in person and, and chat. Yeah. Um, this was a great conversation. And uh, yeah, if you ever want to come back on and talk about anything else, feel free to do so. Sure. It was wonderful. Thank you for having me. Great. Uh, and for everyone listening, uh, as always, there's a weekly podcast. And if you're watching tomorrow morning at 9 a.m., Coffee and California Politics, every Wednesday at 9 a.m., and uh, this will be the last podcast until the new year because of the holidays and Merry Christmas and happy holidays to everybody. So Merry Christmas, Merry Christmas. And on that, God bless us, everyone. We'll end on that. <laughs> Good night. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of California Underground. If you like what you heard, remember to subscribe, like, and review it. And follow California Underground on social media for updates as to when new episodes are available. 